This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And I suck you up and I spit you out and I play with your babies till you scream Welcome to Burn It All Down. It may not be the feminist sports podcast you want, but it's definitely the feminist sports podcast you need. I'm Amira Rose Davis, Assistant Professor of History and Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies at Penn State. And I am joined today by two of my awesome co-hosts, Jess Luther, freelance journalist and author in Austin, Texas, and Shereen Ahmed, journalist in Toronto, Canada. We have a great show for you today. First, we're going to talk about what happens when leagues fail, looking at the CWHL as well as the AAF. Plus, Shireen sits down with Canadian Women's Hockey League player Liz Knox to get an up-close and intimate take on what's going on in the wake of the CWHL announcement that it's ending. Lastly, we're going to talk about coaching yet again. This time, we're looking specifically at recent allegations of abuse at the hands of women coaching and asking what's different or perhaps the same when women coaches are the ones with power. Before we get into all of that, I don't know. Have you guys seen this video? I'm going to. So there's this video (laughs) of Sky Sports and they're, you know, doing live coverage before Southampton Liverpool game. And so Kelly Cates is is talking and pres- and is asking a question about the match, and she she poses a you know great question to her you know co hosts Gary Neville and Jamie Crager, and she she asks a question, and then they both walk away and answer. <laughs> but they're like, they're like she just is standing there and they like walk away answering the question she posed and but you can still see her in the background <laughs> and she's just kind of standing there with her microphone <laughs> looking like I, it's so awkward and like later you know people on twitter obviously were like what in the world like what is happening obviously it's a really apt <laughs> description for you know, generally women covering sports she she took to twitter later to, to clear it up and said they were going to interview in the tunnel and it would have looked weird if they didn't have anything to say as they walked there but like <laughs> what is happening here it was to say the least, to be the most charitable, it was just a very poor execution on the part of the director and people producing it. Like, they clearly hadn't thought through the shot, but they didn't even, the men didn't even transition. Like, they didn't say, thanks, Kelly, we're headed to the tunnel and then start. Like, they, there was no explanation. It is a hilarious, I mean, it's funny because it's just the perfect metaphor for women in sports right right? like it just the visual of it is spectacular and oh it's it's wild it's and people were like 
is this like a skit, like a parody <laughs> about like how it is for women covering sports? And I was like, no, it's completely like a thing that happened. And I totally appreciated Jess's comment that like the transition was terrible. All Gary Neville had to do was like look over and say, thanks, Kelly, and turn around. But it was just literally, it was so badly done. That's why Twitter went ablaze. Like football Twitter was just like, what's happening? But what I really enjoyed out of this was the folks at Mundial uh, Mag actually did a spoof of it. And Amy, who goes by this fangirl uh, one on Twitter, she she did an absolutely like splendid like spoof of it where somebody was speaking to her and then for their coverage of the FA cup and just, she just turned around and started walking to prove a point at how awkward that is visually. And you know what, you know, I think that it makes us think about media training and people to understand optics of what they're seeing. But, you know, I felt bad for Kelly actually, because everybody was like coming at her and sort of saying what's going on here. So, you know, she had to endure a lot of that. It would have been yeah, nice. To, I kind of feel like, yeah. Also, it was just the framing of the shot. Yeah, like, that you could still see it, her the whole time. Her, yeah. <laughs> you didn't see in the background looking like <laughs> forlorn, like sad. <laughs> yeah. Like, uh, just the, li- the literal, the literal turning of the back, you know, yeah. just, yeah. oh, man. Oh, sports media. Oh, so awkward. Exactly. Well, we will try our best to have non-awkward transition. Now <laughs> <laughs> go into the show. This past week, we heard news of two different leagues announcing that they were disbanding and ceasing operation. And I wanted to place these these two conversations with each other to to talk largely about what happens when league folds, what are the narratives, what are the consequences. And I think that, you know, as many of you will know, there's also this kind of gendered element to it that, you know, we want to explore. So Shireen, can you tell us a little bit about what went down? Sure. Thanks, Samira. So as we know, last Sunday, just exactly a week ago, we found out that the CW, the CWHL, the Canadian Women's Professional Hockey League, would be folding due to what was called an economically unstable model because the CDUB had actually set itself up in 2007 as a nonprofit. So that sort of left the six teams and a bunch of players who are heading off to Worlds, which are happening right now in Islo, Finland, left them literally with no time to process the way it was executed. It was really, really rough, particularly like, you know, a week pretty much after the Clarkson Cup finals. So that sort of sent shockwaves and it was just really hard to sort of navigate all the feelings. I still have feelings. I'm in the angry phase now of my feelings. I think, I mean, I was heartbroken for a good seven days. But so I think we'll, we'll get into a little more about that in my conversation with Liz Knox that's coming up on the show. But I think to look at the idea of money and funding and investment and why it's not sustainable. And then in the meantime, uh, the Alliance of American Football actually also after 10 weeks of their season, 10 weeks, and within week number one, they were not unable to pay players on time. So, you know, they also said that they were folding. And I think it's really, it's really important to kind of understand, and we'll get into this also, the money is certainly a central, is the central figure to this, where it's not just about sport and the purity of sports and everything else. And I think the owner of the AAF, Tom Dundon, is he's actually also owner of the Carolina Hurricanes. 
And he had initially put in, I believe, $250 million for the league, but then ended up sort of saying that he wasn't going to be able to, you know, keep supporting it. And then it, it did so many things, including leaving players who were in hotels stranded. Like their belongings, I read, were packed up and put in the lobby. Those with medical oh issues. Yeah, it was really bad. Like those with medical issues, their bills would no longer be paid. They would have to, if they had were like either nursing injuries or getting rehab or treating injuries or any type of con- condition or ailment would have to do it out of their own pocket. So it was just like leaving everybody in such a horrific lurch that it was just, it was sort of mind blowing, like the extent of this. And I know we'll talk about this because we do often talk about the actual people. There's people involved here. There's lives involved here. And I mean, it's a lot to unpack. Yeah, that's such a good point, Shereen, because I actually thought that was one of the interesting parallels. And Amira, thank you for putting this in conversation. I actually hadn't been thinking of it that way this week. But yeah, in both leagues, you had all these players who were like, oh my God, what has just happened here? Um, They both folded so fast. And what that actually means to the athletes who are participating. And that was a really hard thing to watch. I do think, I mean, there's so much to say here. Leagues are hard to keep viable, right? Like that's that's one of the things that we learn over and over again. And how long was the CWHL? How long, how many seasons did they have? CWHL started in 2007. So this is with their 12th year. Ah, oh, that's really impressive. Oh, that's, that makes me really sad for so many reasons. But yeah, the, the, you know, the AAF eight weeks out of their 12 weeks or something, like they, they barely made it. It's interesting. One of the other parallels is that they actually had similar models so both of them, CWHL is nonprofit, uh, the AAF was for profit, but they both had it where there were no team owners, that the leagues actually owned everything. So it's funny how much is the same. But I do what I want to say that I find fascinating is, one, that the AAF, their games were played on CBS, like the initial game, which is kind of wild if you think about how hard it is to get women's sports ever on on main channels so much of the women's ncaa tournament has been on espn2 you know like just it that just is so difficult and the fact that like just from the jump the aaf but of course the two guys who started it one was charlie ebersall his dad is dick ebersall who was a major tv executive in in nbc sports for a long time served on and and dick ebersall was on the board of the aaf bill paulian used to he was the gm for the buffalo bills carolina panthers indianapolis colts so we think like these guys have connections in a very white male world right like the fact that they were able to make these deals to get their players and their teams and their league on cbs from the jump is we're Remarkable if you think about it. And then the other thing that's interesting is that I saw some headline with the CWHL about what's the future for women's hockey, <laughs> right? And no one is wondering what's going to happen to men's football. And the fact that women and female athletes are always carrying this burden around with them that, like, if there is any kind of failure, whatever the reason for that failure, that, like, everything around their sport will come crashing down. Like the viability of the sport itself is dependent on constant success. Whereas men just have to remember, they just don't have that. They're so, so lucky that that is not, that that, they don't carry that with them all the time. No one is worried about men's football. It will be fine. 
Yeah, I think that one of the things, just jumping off what Jess is saying, is the idea of the C-Dub players, many of them, the coaches, the volunteers, always feel this um, obligation and duty to set the tone for the future. So much of not just the marketing, but their interviews and the way they speak about how young girls can see themselves as professional hockey players. And you, you never hear that conversation from, like, football players or athletes in general like what you know I'm there's just this understanding that there'll always be a place to inspire them it's never it's never in question that there won't be and that's something that I'm sort of thinking about and on that note as well one thing that the AAF and the CWHL have in common is in a way the CW is like one of the highest levels of women's professional hockey in the world but it's also a league in which in between worlds and in between olympics they develop they keep progressing there's a place for those those athletes so it's not like we can just look at our teams at world's right olympic time which canada has a tendency to do and then but what happens in between leagues like this are when that happens there's continuity there's play there's competition and and as the aaf from what i understand was also very much like a development league where those players needed training they didn't quite make the nfl but they were getting opportunity they were getting coaching they were getting like literally chances to play and when you take that away you take away so many opportunities it's not just like the big leagues and nothing there are development leagues all along the way minors whatnot and i'm not saying that the cw was minor it wasn't it was like the pinnacle of women's hockey but like and it's almost like the women who are not on the national teams won't have that opportunity. And someone said something that's really, it was really sad for me to hear. Women, I think it was Dr. Ann Pigagaro, and when I was in Boise last week, she says a lot of women will just walk away from the game. They'll just stop. And that really pained me. Yeah, I, I think that's a really good point, Shireen. Um, there's a, a piece by Nate Jackson about the the promises that the AAF makes, right? And he's t- he talks about, this is on Deadspin, he talks about it is this way where you have played in the NFL or you're not quite there or whatever, but you want to keep playing. And this is, you know, the UFL, there's been other, you know, attempts at this and nothing really sustained. And one of the things he says, he says that the NFL's brand, right, is is so tied to those NFL teams, and that's been synonymous with American football. So it's like you have the New York Giants pajamas as kids. You didn't have Birmingham, whatever the fuck it is, right? That's his quote. And he goes, it may be too late for new football hero costumes, but it won't stop people from trying. The AAF tried to take a crack at it. Next, it will be the XFL and someone else. All of them will have ex-NFL coaches, ex-NFL players, and the promise of being signed to NFL rosters and the ever-present optimism of a football team with opponent on the schedule. There's something comforting in that, no matter how dark the clouds overhead. And I think that, you know, again, though, it's the way we talk about it. So the guys playing in the AAF or trying to play in the UFL or, you know, whatever, they're they're just they're just football players who want to play football. And there's this kind of romanticism to it. And I think my, my students always like 
glob onto our discussions about the um, Lingerie mm-hmm. Football League. We watched documentary where it fall. No, I'm sorry. Now they're called the Legends Football League. But they they we watch a documentary that follows you know a, a group of these women around, and a lot of them get into a really heated debate about is it worth it? You know, they don't. They have to have insurance, but it's not provided. They barely get paid. They mostly pay to be in the league. You know, they're you know objectified. All of this stuff. They have other jobs. And so people will say, well, why is it worth it? Like your love of this, like, I know that you have a love in sport. Well, like take a football and go play in the backyard. Right. And I feel like that gets applied to women, professional athletes in general. Like, I know you have a love of the sport, but it's not worth it. You don't have the infrastructure. So just like go kick around a ball in the backyard and not try to make these leagues institutionalized and viable, et cetera. And I find that a lot of the rhetoric around, you know, all the kind of attempts to start up an alternative to the NFL, A, romanticize the desire of men to play sports and are perfectly legitimized by their continued attempts to institutionalize something, but also drive in a lot more critiques about the NFL as a monopoly and these kind of larger systemic issues where like, then you talk about women's sports and it's like, nobody can see an institution. Nobody can see a systemic issue. It's just like, it's all about pathologies, but women don't care about sports or it's not market, whatever. And it gets really pathologized instead of talking about actual structural inequities that all of a sudden when we're talking about the AFF, we can all of a sudden critique the NFL as a corporation or monopoly. And it's like, Oh, like now you have systemic <laughs> critique. Yeah. Now you have range to do yeah. that. So that's been, you know, really, you know, I think interesting as well. So it leaves me wondering what happens next. I'm wondering in a lot of ways, what is it, where do the players go? There's discussion, and just I'll add this because it's relevant, that the NWHL came out with the possibility, in my opinion, that was badly timed, just because it was literally the day of the CWHL announcement was made, to partner up with the NHL and Gary Bettman has pledged money, et cetera, et cetera. It also must be said that the NHL has donated $100,000 to the CWHL to make sure the players are paid. So like, this is what we're talking about in terms of money and in terms of you know, people getting paid, being able to pay their bills. It just it just makes me think where we can go here. But again, it gets back to in terms of the systems, Amira, that you talked about, to making sure that the financial one is in place so it doesn't have to subjugate in other areas. I mean, people need to live and hockey players are no different. Next up, Shireen interviews Markham Thunder goalie and CWHL Players Association co-chair Liz Knox about the folding of the CWHL and the reactions and what's next. Hi, flamethrowers. Shireen here. I'm so, so honored to have Liz Knox on with us to talk CWHL, the league, hashtag no league and where we are going, and what women's hockey deserves. Liz, for those of you that don't know her, is a goaltender with Markham Thunder, the 2018 Clarkson Cup champions. She's also a gold medalist. She is an incredible person, and she's also co-chair of the CWHL Players Association. Liz, thank you so much for being on Burn It All Down. Oh, that's quite an intro. Thanks very much for having me. Let's talk about this and jump right into it. First of all, you just finished the season. March 24th was the Clarkson Cup final. It was watched by like over 170,000 people across three networks, which was a first, which aired in the US and Canada. Did you have any idea at all or inkling that the league was going to fold? 
No, I mean, I had no clue. I went to the game on Sunday, probably, you know, half a dozen, maybe 10 of our teammates. And yeah, it was great hockey. You know, everyone's the spirits were high. We're already talking about next year. I mean, in, in Markham, we just love hockey. So sometimes you get that lull after the season, like, uh, you need a break. But we were keen to get back in the dressing room and get back on the ice with each other. So it was, uh, it was really shocking to have a week later, obviously, the announcement come out that it did. Yeah, it's, it was crazy. I will have to ask forgiveness because I actually thought it was an April Fool's Day joke a little early. <laughs> I saw that on Twitter a couple times and I was like, man, <laughs> I guess that's what we get for that timing. That's a little bit of payback, I guess. <laughs> okay, so let's talk about timing because at least like 24 players from the C-Dub are actually at Worlds right now. So like, not just that it's an injustice generally, but to try to get out of that and then get into the mindset, like you're a national team player formally, like, how is that possible? I mean, they won today against Switzerland, but how difficult is this for anybody and then to be expected to go and represent your country? That must be impossible. I have, I have kind of like two takes on it. The first is that I don't want to say it was a good thing. It definitely was not a good thing. But it's widely known, obviously, that the World Championships puts a huge spotlight on women's hockey. And for people that aren't hockey fans, that might be one of the times this year, maybe the only time this year that they catch, you know, some of the action and that they see these women on TV and that the women are given a voice to say, this is what's happening. And this is how we feel about it. So in in some ways, like, maybe it was timed that way. The other side of it, which is like, a sad reality is that as tough as I know it is for these girls to refocus and and set their sights on their goals for the world championship, it's what we do. You know what I mean? Like we fight so hard for everything, every little inch that we get in women's hockey. And certainly this is emotionally, you know, a heavy time for those players. But at the same time, it's like, yeah, well, they will refocus and they will play their best hockey because that's what women's hockey players do. We don't we don't have time to sit around and feel sorry for ourselves or whatever it may be. Like it's you gotta show up and you gotta put the best product on the ice because if you don't, somebody's waiting there to, you know, tell you it's not good enough. So like I said, it's kind of a sad reality, but it's what they do. They're the best players in the world, mentally and physically. So Haley Wickenheiser, her tweet about how it's one step back, two steps forward, possibly, and it could be a good thing. What do you, what do you think about that? You know, Haley's got a very interesting resume to back up her point, and I think it's one that we should take very seriously. It's it's a hard one to see right now. Obviously, like you say, you know, it's a very emotional time for us, and we're dealing with a huge loss, and you know, we're grieving not just for ourselves but for our teammates and their futures in the league. So, but Haley knows the game. You know, she's been in all worlds of it. She's been on the men's side. She's now in the NHL. She's been obviously very heavily in the women's side. She's kind of achieved all the goals and and benchmarks that she set out for herself. So for her to say that, I'm not reading into it, but at the same time, she's been around. So maybe she's seeing something that, or trying to guide us at least into, into seeing the bigger picture here. Yeah, no, that's totally fair. She's like the hockey prophet of Canada, I think, in a lot of ways. But I mean, I think the positivity there, and you're right about the experience. I I totally understand that. So from a perspective of players, what had some of your teammates, what were some of the reactions that we didn't see? Because from where I was sitting, it seemed as if a lot of the C-doublers were finding out from social media. Is that how many found out? Yeah, so all the players were invited onto the call on Sunday morning. So the PA and the GMs hopped on a call at 9.30 a.m. 
where we were read the script that the CWHL was uh, going to seize operations. And then at 10, so only half an hour afterwards, all the other players were invited to join the call. But of course, like, you know, we only got the noti- notification on, I think, Friday. And so some girls, you know, we're right after season, girls are going away, and girls have other commitments to their family, whatnot. So not everybody was able to get on the call. So those of us that were on the call got the information there. And then it was actually as we were on the call that the CWHL had posted to their Twitter, basically the announcement. So I think that's where a lot of that overlap came to for girls that weren't weren't able to make calls. It was like, we're still in the middle of it now. It's all over social. And then, yeah, they jumped right to the media. And then this Jenna Hepford comments of how the CW, which started off as a nonprofit in 2007, was an economically non-sustainable model. Mm -hmm. What did that feel like when there's so many other ways we could gauge success? Yeah, I mean, you make a great point, honestly. I think the league was successful. I truly do. My first year was 2011. I could have named everybody in the stands and like our jerseys were, we didn't even have team names at the time. We were, I was in Brampton at the time before we moved to Markham and our jerseys were just Brampton. I remember, (laughs) you know, (laughs) it was a pretty Bush league, but um, like it was tough to get fans out. It was tough to get people knowing who we were, what we were doing. And I don't think that it's a matter of the league being unsuccessful. I think we were very successful. We reached a, a much larger market than we did in my first mm-hmm. year. Saw a lot of more investment from different spheres of the hockey world. But in terms of it being economically unsustainable, I unfortunately don't really get to see the books. So anything I say right now is obviously speculation. But if I had to guess, you know, we're a not-for-profit. And so people automatically assume that means like we can't make money. Well, we can make money, but we just weren't. So <laughs> I kind of see where they're coming from in that regard. Do I think we could have made it another year or another five years? Honestly, I do. I think there's people who are willing to invest in women's hockey and they're out there. But I think that maybe, especially because I know Jaina, like maybe maybe the thought was that we're just not seeing the growth that we want to. And we're not a not-for-profit like the NCAA. We're not generating millions <laughs> of dollars. You know, right. we're, we're, we're barely, you know, paying our gas money right now. So yeah. it's tough to say. I guess it depends on what your idea of, you know, sustainable is. Right. And I mean, the interview that you did for The Current with Courtney Sito, Dr. Sito has been on our show before. She's a friend of the show. We will link to our show notes because that was really important. It was a really, really, really fantastic interview. But also you all talked about the idea of how, and I think Courtney mentioned this specifically, that you have to invest in something to make money. Like it's not as if women's hockey cannot be profitable. And it's not that we can only get away with supporting the national team once every four years and possibly a world. It's the development that goes into it. Like I've been coming to C-Dub games for a while, even though I'm admittedly a Le Canadien fan when they come watch the Toronto Furies <laughs> play or come to Mark, I'll watch them there. I'm, I know you broke my heart. Liz in 2018. But I have seen the growth. I have seen with my own eyes. Like Mm -hmm. I was fortunate enough to take my kids. I have three boys and a soccer player. And so I take my four kids with friends to to go watch. The boys were totally riveted. Like the level Mm -hmm. and caliber of this hockey is incredible. And then also the opportunity to talk to the players, to meet with them. They're always, you're always doing autograph signings, taking photos, inspiring like the amount of kids. And even at the all-star game that I went to this year, it was incredible. 
it was, it was, it, there was boys teams there as well, but just the amount of people had grown so much and to give an yeah. opportunity to grow as well. Like the NCAA women's basketball competition, it's in its 22nd year, which is why it is right now the way it is. Mm-hmm. Do you think the CW got a fair shot even? It's tough to say because if you look at where the CW started, the CW as we know it, it was 12 years ago, 2007. And it was basically because the people that were investing at that time didn't believe in it. They basically, for lack of better terms, they gave up on it. It was like, this isn't profitable. We're not, we're not making money. So we're out. So it's a very different situation than where we're at right now, which is that you know the people that are investing in the game actually do believe in it, but we don't have something in place to really flourish those investments. And I think that we're in a whole demographic of people that the NHL can't touch that pro men's hockey can't touch because it's not inclusive. And and that's the thing about, you know, the women's hockey demographic is that, you know, we are very inclusive. We are very LGBTQ allied and oriented. And and so you, you're reaching a whole new market that the NHL is trying. They have their hockeys for everyone and they have their girls hockey day or weekend. But it, no, like we're doing this every day. It's incredible to see the fan base, where it's come from. And, you know, at Markham Home Games, we have young boys teams, we have young girls teams. We have, I would say, at least half the stands is just people of our age who, like, they're friends of ours or they're fans of ours. And it's totally different than what it was 12 years ago. So were we given a fair shot? I mean, it's like we're doing the best with what we got. You know what I mean? (laughs) So I don't know who the fair shot would come from. I think the league truly did you know, work hard to to give opportunities to us, but it was a little bit of a dollars and cents game and and we weren't seeing the investment from sponsors that we were hoping. Yeah, and that's fair. On to another ounce of culpability, media. Canadian sports media, US media has been all over the story. How do you feel about them not being there before? Hey guys, and I'll say guys, because the majority of sports media in Canada are guys, where have you been before this? You know, it's funny. I saw, I can't remember who it was now. Somebody had tweeted out like, you know, popular sports media on women's sports. And it was like, small story about the formation of a league. Crickets throughout its existence. Massive story when it fails. (laughs) I kind of do feel that way, but it is a story, you know, and people want to know why did it fail? So it is a little bit ironic, but at the same time, it's an opportunity for us to tell them. You want to know why it didn't work? Well, they don't see us. Mm-hmm. Families don't see us. Young girls don't see us. They do if they come to a game, but they have to know about the game to come to it. And they don't see that. And that was another huge obstacle to CWHL is that we're doing the best we can with our marketing dollars to promote ourselves. And the players are certainly going out of their way to promote ourselves. But if they don't know you're there, then they're not going to come buy a ticket and put their butts in the seat. So on the current the other day, somebody, one of the women brought up the point of broadcasting. And I think it was Courtney, actually, you know, putting it on the oh, CBC. Yeah, she saying, called them out on the CBC. <laughs> oh, yeah. Nothing like calling you out on your own show. And, oh, sorry, your mic just cut out. Oh, oh it looks like we've lost Courtney. <laughs> <laughs> but no, and she's right. Like there is no broadcasting. And in this day and age, with the way that we consume, you know, our sports and all of our media, if you can't see it, if it's not in your face, you're not going to go out seeking it. There's so much media in your on your screens and on your phones and everywhere. 
if we're not consistently seeing women's hockey there, people won't seek it out themselves. In terms of next steps, in terms of the NWHL, you did mention a really good point just we were chatting before we started recording about the proposition to have Detroit and Montreal's expansion teams and the NWHL. It's not a new idea. Like it's something that was suggested a couple of years ago. Do you think that maybe Danny Ryland should have waited a little while for it to sink in as opposed to coming out? And I mean, I can't even with Gary Bettman, so I don't even want to. I just cannot. <laughs> but just maybe they should have waited. And maybe I say this as a grieving fan. I don't know. I think there's like some ignorance there. And I don't mean that in a derogatory term. I just mean that you know, because, you know, you're in Ontario and, and you understand the climate of uh, like the sense of loss that hockey fans and women's hockey fans are feeling right now. And so I say ignorance in the fact that like they're south of the border, they've got their own thing going on. It's going well for them from what I can see. They saw this as an opportunity. Yep. Let's jump on it. You know, let's get in those markets right now. And I think it's it was a little almost insensitive, maybe, just to not give us the time to be like, I haven't even cleared my stall out yet. And now you're jumping in saying, well, it's okay. I, we got a new home for you here. And putting two teams, like like we said, this is part of their plan all along. This is part of their three-year plan five years ago. So I, I understand that's part of it is strategic. It's not, I don't, I don't know if it's malicious, but you know, it is part of their business strategy, but it's really tough right now for us players. And there's 150 of us, 120 of us, and two teams. Like it, it doesn't really help us. <laughs> not, not to mention that Inferno, who are the reigning Clarkson Cup champions, also are not part right. of that expansion. So it's like there's yeah. a team in China. Like there's, you know, there's like two in the GTA Greater Toronto area. Like there's just, and we have these like emotional connections to our teams. Oh, like God, yes. I was like fortunate enough to be on the team when Markham moved and we rebranded and we are all part of that. That was not something like, you know, the nice thing about the CWHL is it's very intimate to its players. Mm -hmm. The original slogan was like for the players, by the players. So we had a say in what the logo looked like. We had a say in what the colors were going to be. We had a say in what our dressing room layout was going to be like, this is something that we've literally built and it's all gone. So it's, it's a very difficult time. Like <laughs> it's not, uh, you can't just throw a bandaid on it and we're all good. You know? <laughs> No, but I love what you just said about the league being built by the players for the players. That's really important. And Canadian women's hockey culture is something else. Like it, it is its own thing. And I, I totally agree with you. There's a lot of people, and not just in Ontario, that are really heartbroken and looking and, and trying to be optimistic. Right. I think it's okay to hang on to that. And I will certainly do that. And I just wanted you to just mention one thing I saw on Twitter today, and today is Thursday, that Markham. Thunder is actually auctioning some of their jerseys. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that was like a punch in the gut to me. So I can't even imagine what that was like. Was that something that the players talked about as well? You know what? It's something that our GM decided on. And it's something actually that we've done every year. We get to keep one jersey and then one jersey goes to auction. Okay. So, okay. The, you know, the act of actually selling them was not something that was that shocking. But okay. Honestly, when I saw that today, I literally started to cry. Oh. I was like, I'm so heartbroken for the players that, you know, we're kind of forced into this. It's such a privilege to think that you could choose when you're ready to walk away from the game. And for some of these players, this will be the thing that means they don't play pro women's hockey. And that's that's gut-wrenching to me. It's, it's hard to think of the people that committed their time and their days to me 
you know, not having the chance to choose when they want to walk away. So just the image of seeing all the jerseys hung up and it really brought home. And I've been so overwhelmed and busy with media and stuff like that the last few days and happy to do it. But that was one thing that I was like, wow, like this is going to change forever. Yeah, I hear you. And I, again, I just want to reiterate how much everybody in the C-Dub from volunteers to coaching staff to trainers to players, obviously, how much we saw you hustle, how hard you worked and how much joy you gave all of us. Like, I don't even know how to, how do I send a thank you card out to everybody? Like, how do I do that (laughs) other than just tweeting that I stand you all? And I hope there is some type of, you know, resolution and some type of opportunity for everybody, particularly the sacrifices the players have made personally, financially for the love of the game. I also want to thank you for being on Burn It All Down today because this has been incredibly insightful and really, really important. And you have fans and friends in us. So if we can ever do anything and just wanted to say I was very serious about you coming to my birthday party next year. I wasn't kidding. Awesome. I wasn't kidding. Well, I'll leave, I'll leave January open, (laughs) but uh, you hit the nail on the head there and it's, the players do work so hard and I look around the league and actually Mel DeRoche kind of retweeted when I put the link up about our jerseys going up and you know you see players from other teams realizing this is it and if I could leave on like a positive note it would just be that I hope that you know your kids generation or my kids generation one day will grow up in a world where it's not such a grind I read the a Ted Lindsay article the last night actually and mm-hmm. the climate of the NHL at the time when Ted Lindsay Lindsay stepped in and and formed a the NHLPA mm-hmm. reading that article was so similar to some of the things that we're going through and mm-hmm. the quote for the love of the game was something they used back then and it was like you know these guys are sacrificing their lives and their families and and they do it because they love it and we're no different but you know women's hockey was first in the olympics in what 1998 in Nagano, i think yeah so our history is very young but at the same time we're living in a different generation we're in 2019 and I really do believe that there's better for us. Awesome. Thank you so much for being on the show, Liz. Awesome. Thanks for having me. So this week, we also saw a number of headlines in a variety of places about coaches behaving badly. And we've talked about this on our our show before. We've talked about abusive coaches and power dynamics within coaching. But one of the things that we noticed with the stories emerging this week is that a lot of the coaches seem to be women. And so we wanted to take a second and, and have a conversation on what is the coaching dynamic between women coaches and what happens when it's women coaches who are being abusive. Jess? Yeah, so I apologize for this is going to be a bit of a long introduction, but I want to make sure to be clear about what all has been said in the over the last month or so. So this week, UNC, the University of North Carolina, suspended their women's basketball program, the coaches, after a large group of parents of the players told administrators that head coach Sylvia Hatchell made racist remarks to her players and forced them to play through serious injuries. According to the Washington Post, at one point, Hatchell suggested, quote, her players would get hanged from trees with nooses at an upcoming game if their performance didn't improve. And another time tried, quote, to get her players to engage in a war chant to honor the Native American ancestry of an assistant coach. As to playing through injury, again, from the Washington Post, quote, one later, one player later learned she needed corrective shoulder surgery. Another learned she had a torn tendon in her knee. A third said Hatchell had caught, cast doubt on whether she had suffered a concussion. 
This comes on the heels of two other reports of abusive female basketball coaches. Last month, a player for Cameron Whitaker, the head coach of the Northern Kentucky women's basketball team, wrote a lengthy piece about the, quote, verbal aggression, intimidation, manipulation, and humiliation Whitaker lobbed at her players. According to the player, Taryn Togger, who wrote a long piece at Odyssey, Whitaker called her lazy, attacked her physique, threatened to take her scholarship away. She would physically isolate players from the team if she was unhappy with them, like force them to sit at the end of the bench kind of thing, and once humiliated a teammate for having Crohn's disease. One player lodged a Title IX complaint against Whitaker in December, and Whitaker responded, quote, I don't know who's trying to ruin my life, but I want to let you know that I am invincible and I'm not going anywhere. I am your coach. I signed a contract and I'm not going anywhere. Both UNC and Northern Kentucky are investigating. Then there's Michelle Joseph, the now former head coach of Georgia Tech, who was fired last month after a completed investigation in which, quote, players described feeling insecure, nervous, anxious, and scared at various points in the season and in their careers. Others described the environment as toxic, suffocating, draining, and miserable and unhealthy. The players described Coach Joseph's conduct as bullying and emotionally, mentally, and verbally abusive. Joseph, though, says she was fired because she was advocating for gender equity at Georgia Tech and that these allegations are manufactured to get rid of her and shut her up. So what's happening at Georgia Tech is where this gets really sticky. In 2016, Revealed did a deep dive into inequality in women's sports. And in that reporting found, quote, in the past decade, at least 29 female coaches and eight female sports administrators had filed retaliation lawsuits against their universities. These lawsuits follow a similar storyline. A woman witnesses some discrimination in the athletic department. She speaks up to a superior. Then she gets fired or receives a negative performance evaluation. And then in nearly half of those retaliation cases, 13 of the 29, the coaches say they were accused of mistreating or verbally abusing their players. Okay, so here we are again. A rash of reports of female coaches being abusive. And I believe that female coaches are as capable of being abusive as male coaches because I believe the line between coaching and abuse is razor thin a lot of the time. I also believe that we are harsher on women, report them for being harsh, and that administrators administrations would use this to get rid of whistleblowers. I believe all of that. So I find this to be just a complicated topic where I want to honor all these possibilities without diminishing any of them. So what are you guys what are you guys thinking at this point? I mean, of course women can abuse. I mean, of course. I believe that that is totally possible. And that's happened. Yeah, I really like how you set that up because I think that there's always a lot of things in operation. I think 100%, you know, this idea that women coaches are, you know, motherly or, you know, caring or whatnot belies the fact that, like, exactly what you said, that there's power dynamics at play and power can always be abused. It doesn't matter who's wielding it. And I think that, you know, I mean, obviously I work here at Penn State where we had a huge historic case of abuse at the hands of Rene Portland. So certainly I think that, and I think your point is interesting about your second point is interesting, it brings up things I haven't really considered, but as you said it, I was like, yeah, totally, you know, that there is a way that women behaving in the same ways as their male counterparts will be viewed more harshly and can be used as a way to discipline, you know, whistleblowers on unruly women or whatever. And so I think that that is really, you know, compelling to hold, you know, simultaneously and think about these kind of boxes that, that women have to fit into. That means that the policing on either side gets kind of muddled. Shireen? Yeah, I think that when I was just listening to Jess, you intro particularly about 
what happened and the comments that were made and they're not microaggressions like no sylvia hatchell saying <laughs> no you're gonna hang from a tree with this it's not a microaggression it's like actual like violence and i i'm i'm not stunned but i also think that there's this very gray area where women will say okay we're gonna talk about the amplification of women because women in coaching positions is really important, but not talk about the underlying issues, which is why we sort of have to look at something to what Amira says and not do an uncritical celebration. Let's just be really happy that like people like Kim Malkia Baylor are doing this and not look at the negativity and the toxicity that she, she propelled herself or she has propelled in the past, whatnot. And I know very little about, a lot of things, but I found myself engaging into needless Twitter battles with people because of just, you know, it's like, and I, and I hear Baylor and I'm just like, go read Jessica Luther and don't talk to me kind of thing is like literally where I am now. But I think it's sort of like it very much white women I see here in the positions of power that we're talking about that are using that. Well, I'm a woman, ergo I'll rely on the you know, that thing of I'm a woman and people are coming against me. But when they're engaging in like homophobic or transphobic or racialized aggressions, like it just gets muddled and they use the shield of I'm a woman. Does that make sense what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. Totally, totally. And I think it's, you know, especially in the Hatchell case, like obviously things are still coming out. We'll, We'll figure out where it all lands. But like you can tell even by her lawyer, they're using a very old playbook to borrow from, you know, Jess's apt analogy about things. She's like, oh, I've coached so many African-Americans. I don't have a racist bone in my body. Like, nobody has racist bones. Bones are bones. But like, <laughs> like that, what do you, like, yeah, it's just so tiring. It's so tiring already. Jess? That's so interesting because just yesterday I was talking to Dan Solomon, the guy that I reported with a lot about uh, Tommy Tuberville. It's going to run for Senate in Alabama. As a Republican, he's a former head football coach at lots of different places. Um, And he's running, like, in his announcement tweet, he had MAGA hashtag. And I think about Bobby Bowden, you know, stumping for Trump and just the idea that white people are, that their racism is softened somehow or cured or whatever the right word would be by being around a lot of black people is totally, we can put that lie to bed by looking at these football coaches. And so this idea that Sylvia Hatchell, because she's coached black women, is somehow can't be racist. It's just whatever. One of the things I wanted to bring up, and we've talked about this before, and we will talk about it again, is that, you know, sports are so gendered and they're gendered as male, right? And anytime that women are participating, they're somehow upsetting the natural order of things. And we're trying to fit them into this very gendered idea and of of what we think sports are right so what does it mean when a woman like what does it mean for a woman to look tough right for a, a woman to be a tough coach and it's all i i do think it's always going to look worse it's easier to see them as abusive in the way that we have these things framed again i think they're probably being abusive because i think coaching in general and the way that we've done it for a really long time tends to lean that way. But I was thinking a lot in prepping for this about Joni Taylor. And we talked about her at the live show in episode 97. She was the one who returned to coaching immediately after having a baby. And we talked about how she felt we she probably felt pressure to do that, right? And just this idea of like what women are up against in order to 
prove that they should be there. But then they're tiptoeing in a way that men just don't have to. Nothing's going to happen to Tom Izzo, even though everyone got really mad at the head coach of Michigan State for the way that he yelled at Aaron Henry. And I think we talked about this on one of the episodes. Gino Ariema was out here defending Izzo this week and, and talking about how players are too sensitive these days and that he's worried about how easy it is to say that a coach is abusive. Nothing, nothing's going to happen to Tom Izzo. Like no, no one thinks that anything is going to happen to him for what we all actually watched happen on television. It's just so fucking complicated. And it'd just be nice but, if gender wasn't <laughs> like, yeah, this you is know, the problem here. <laughs> and it's, it's interesting, Jess. Like, I generally agree with you, but I also think that there's women coaches who've become so embedded in their institution that they they get to that level of protection. So, like, one yeah, historically... Yeah, no, I agree, I, too. No, I know, totally, totally agree. Like, I think of Rini Portland here, and it wasn't that she was just kind of... She was protected by Paterno, right? And or I think of people like Kim Mulkey, who I was thinking Mulkey too. the other day in the intro and one of the pieces they did, they were they wanted to tell us about her grandbaby and how she softened because of the grandbaby. And in order to get us there, they had players talking about how terrifying Kim Mulkey is. And I was like, and like, I mean, (laughs) we've seen we've seen what Brittany Griner says. You know, we we know like I no comment, but you know, have seen her up close in, in various interactions with players and have my own, you know, kind of personal experience with her in, in that way. And I think, but what is true is that she's so embedded in that institution that she gets afforded all the protections of that. Like Baylor's women basketball sells out. Their their crowd is amazing, right? It's It's one of those spaces that operates very similar to how we envision male sports operating. And I think that there's pockets of that around the country that, and in in those cases, you know. Yeah. I think, I think Hatchell's going to get that protection at UNC. Like she's her own kind of institution there. So I'm, I mean, I think this is going to be really interesting to see how the school actually handles this because it's like, she's a big deal there. This is a big deal. And I wonder if that institutional protection because it's North Carolina, it's racism on top of everything else. I, I mean, but I, I agree with you that these women get that same sort of protection, certain women at certain schools. And I I worry that Hatchell's one of them. I'm interested to see because it's six people and not one. Yeah, it's a lot. Amen. You're right. You're right. But I mean, the odds of them like literally wiping out the coaching staff and then bringing in more people, I just don't think that's going to happen. I think it's a lot easier to do this public. We're working with cultural sensitivity in this and then have the rhetoric while she's, I mean, I find that I've coached black players before as the coaches. I have a black friend. Like, I mean, that doesn't like and people are not even taking into consideration the power dynamic that lies there. Like, it's it's unbelievable that this could even be used. But it's not unbelievable because it's going to be it's part of the the way the system was set up. It wasn't set up to benefit athletes or black or brown bodies. It just wasn't. And I mean, it won't surprise me if absolutely nothing happens. And just like you said, if she's an institution there, then we know how seldom institutions crumble. All right, it's time for everyone's favorite time of the show where we take up all of the things that is burnable this week and we toss them on our burn pile and set them aflame. Shireen, what are you burning this week? 
Everything. She's burning everything. (laughs) (laughs) I I thank you both for your patience and me like literally listing in Slack all the things I was angry about this week. So this is a tough one. There's a lot of things that I wanted to burn, but definitely the situation with Juventus's Moise King being verbally abused by Cagliari fans and said, but then it's not enough. The monkey noises weren't enough. But then being publicly chided by his own captain, Leonardo Bonucci, was the pinnacle. And yes, this is Juventus. This is the city, uh, you know, the city uh, champs. Yes, the ones who have been protecting, you know, my absolute thorn in my football side. Cristiano Ronaldo and uh, throughout the everything. So they're basically going to say, and what Leonardo Bonucci said, and I'll just give you some context here, is Moise Keane was literally being racially abused as he was playing. And his response to that was the score. He's 19 years old, absolutely brilliant, brilliant player. And he went and stood arms open facing the crowd. And his Instagram post later was, this is how you respond to to this kind of abuse. He didn't say anything. Can you imagine being 19 years old? So then what Leonardo Bonucci said in an interview later was that, well, it was 50-50. He shouldn't have reacted that way. So, okay, I'm sorry. I'm not down for Leonardo Bonucci telling a young black man how to respond to racism. And like, I, like it's almost like you can't do anything. If he had, you know, reacted in a different way, like Blaise Matuidi did, his teammate was far more visibly upset and said he to his captain he was going to walk off the pitch if that ever happened again. Because you know Matuidi was probably triggered by this because it's happened to him. But then for that to happen, and then you know Juventus to be like, no, Juve to say, well, and even the coach was sort of Allegri was like, well, you know, it could have gone either either way. No, it couldn't have gone either way. There's only one position you have to take on races is that it's bad. This really is not complicated, Juventus. The bar is so low. Just roll over it. And nobody is looking at, nobody is looking at Juve to be our moral compass of fucking anything. Nobody is doing that. But this is not what this is. And so what happened was Raheem Sterling, who we all love, came out publicly and supported Keane. Enia Luko came out because she plays on Juventus's women's side and said very publicly she supported him. And I that was important, too. So, again, the work is being done by black athletes to support black athletes. Meanwhile, the rich people and the white so-called allies are doing nothing. So that whole thing, that whole Juve train of whiteness and you should have done it this way like Bonucci the 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 club that whole racism like the monkey a monkey chance like all of that I want to torch burn Burn. I really wanted you to say so yes Raheem it's laughable but it's also burnable (laughs) Raheem it's laughable but it's also burnable burn he's burn Yeah, so I want to burn this week. I don't know if you guys remember, we talked about it in the show last year almost. There was a case against Michael Bennett that came out under weird circumstances from the Houston PD where they accused oh, yeah. him of yeah, pushing past a <laughs> quadriplegic oh, yes, elderly that's right. woman. Yeah, so you remember this and we talked about it because it came it was a Super Bowl. Was that what it was? Yeah, it was on the okay. Super Bowl, but they didn't bring charges for like six months later. And it was curious timing because it was like like right before things that make white people uncomfortable came out, like literally right before. And they held this whole press conference where they they called him 
ridiculous things. He the the police chief of Houston, Art Avacito, he basically like held this huge press conference and he called Bennett morally corrupt and morally bankrupt. He just engaged in all sorts of defamation. And like they had a very public presser for a seven month old charge that they didn't have any video evidence for, despite that fact that they had him in video celebrating everything else. (laughs) And it was at the same time, because literally at the same time, the same uh, police chief has a long history, both in Houston, as well as when he was a police chief over in Austin, where, you know, there has been ridiculously cases of police brutality and, and racialized police brutality. And he has just never had that kind of moral outrage. She's never had, you know, the kind of presser to condemn anything. Like he just doesn't do it. And so, you know, this was a circus back when this happened. And so this week they quietly announced that all charges were dropped and that they had nothing to support the case and that they wouldn't be proceeding with it. And it really irritates me that you get very loud and you get very vocal and you want to hold pressers and you want to call people names and you want to defame and you want to do this, you know, seven months after this allegedly took place and just mere days before uh, Michael and Dave's book, when things that make white people uncomfortable drops, you want to do it in a moment to try to discredit his activism. And you want to be super loud when you do that. But all of a sudden now you want to be whispering and what's sad about it is it does its job. It's denigrated Michael. It's, you know, there's many people who won't see this update. There's many people who don't know that the charges are dropped. They're just going to remember the police chief calling him morally bankrupt, and that's all they need. They just need that soundbite to further disparage and denigrate players who dare to be vocal and, and speak out. And, and, you know, this effort to kind of discipline Black bodies, and it's just really annoying because it's, it's, it's not, I'm just annoyed. I'm generally annoyed. <laughs> yeah. Like you want to be loud, then fucking be loud all the time. Be just as loud when you're correcting your mistake. It's dumb. I'm glad that Michael is not dealing with these charges anymore. And, you know, I'm just over it. Burn it down. Burn. Burn. All right, Jess, take us home. Yeah, well, since I have the opportunity right now, I just want to point out to everyone that Art Acevedo, who was who is the police chief in Houston, that when he was in California trying to go for the head of the CHP, the California Highway Patrol, he was sued at the time by a woman who said that he was showing nude photographs of her. She was a fellow CHP officer to other high-ranking officers while on duty. So he is just garbage and has been for a long time and keeps going up the ladder, as they do. Some might even call him morally bankrupt. Yeah, I know. (laughs) All right. Here we go. So we have talked multiple times on the show about Jordan McNair, the University of Maryland football player who died a preventable death from heat stroke after a spring training last year. Well, last August, Braden Bradforth, a football player at Garden City Community College in Kansas, collapsed and died from heat stroke after a grueling workout. He'd only been on campus for two days at that point. His coach, Jeffrey Sims, said that the 19-year-old's death was most likely due to a blood clot and, of course, had nothing to do with the team's practice. An autopsy result in December proved Sims wrong. Now Braden's mother, Joanne Atkins Ingram, wants the school held accountable. In December, she told the Asbury Park Press, quote, I hold the whole school liable. It's bittersweet. I'm glad to know the truth, but it doesn't bring him back. 
The school has done an internal investigation, but won't tell Bradford's family the results. Surveillance footage from where he was found on campus has been deleted. The Kansas Attorney General's office has rejected a lawmaker's request that they step in and investigate because they say it's out of their jurisdiction. In March, this past March, the U.S. Rep. Chris Smith, a Republican from New Jersey, wrote a letter to Garden City Community College President Ryan Ruda and requested an independent investigation. The school gave a brief reply that said inquiries should be made to the school's insurance carrier. The family is considering suing because what other option is left to find out what exactly happened to Brayden? There's a petition that you can sign to join a chorus of voices trying to put pressure on Garden City Community College to be transparent about what happened, and we'll link to that in the show notes. Oh, and Sims, the head coach who tried to say this was a blood clot and nothing to do with practice, well, he's moved up the ranks from coaching community college ball to being the head football coach at Missouri Southern State University. So burn Mm. all of this. Burn. Burn. After all that burning, it's time to highlight some badass women of the week. First, honorable mentions. It was recently announced that LaChina Robinson and Debbie Antonelli will be women's basketball analysts on the new ACC Network. Congrats. Also, more women football fans, this time in Sweden, where 25,882 people packed the Friends Arena to watch Sweden and Germany play. Also, shout out to Megan Gustafson from the University of Iowa, who was voted the AP Player of the Year this year. Congrats to you. Karishma Ali, the president of the Chicharral Women's Sports Club and Aussie Rules football player, was the first Pakistani person from that region to be named to Forbes' Asia 30 Under 30 list. Congrats to you. Rima Julafi, Saudi Arabia's first female racing driver, made her first F4 British Championship debut at Brands Hatch this weekend. The 27-year-old will drive for defending champions Double R Racing alongside Lewis Foster and Sebastian Alvarez. Also, Stephanie McCaffrey of the Chicago Red Stars, who had to walk away as a professional soccer player due to a neurological illness. But she wrote a beautiful piece in The Equalizer about her journey called Finding My Silver Lining. Happy trails, Stephanie. Kylie Massey, the University of Toronto Female Athlete of the Year, is competing at the World Trials and is now ranked number one in the world in the 200 backstroke. And Melissa Borjas Pastrana, who's a ref from Honduras, she will be the first woman to lead the National Classic. Do we know when this is? It's coming up. Coming up. (laughs) Shout out to the Arizona Wildcats who recently won the women's NIT tournament. And also a shout out, a historical shout out to the Wayland Baptist University's basketball team, who was the kind of team alumni, women's alumni induction into the base, uh, into the basketball hall of fame recently. And a drum roll, please. Is it just me? Okay. <laughs> no, I'm I'm drumming. Okay. Well, drum roll there. This <laughs> week's badass woman of the week goes to Teresa Weatherspoon. Yay. Teresa was a five-time WNBA All-Star, two-time WNBA Defensive Player of the Year. She's an iconic player who played for the New York Liberty. She was the first player in the WNBA to get to a thousand points and a thousand assists. Uh, she had a, a illustrious international career. Uh, a six-time Italian League All-Star, a two-time Russian League Championship, and Olympic gold medalist to boot. She's a Texas girl, played for Louisiana Tech, where she was on the All-American team multiple times. And, of course, in 1988, which is the best year on earth, she led her team (laughs) to the NCAA Championships and won the Wade Trophy there. 
Uh, she was inducted into the Women's Basketball Hall in 2010, and this week she became a member of the National Basketball Hall of Fame. She's going to Springfield. Congrats to you, Teresa. You are our Badass Woman of the Week. All right, folks, what's good in your life? Jess? Yeah, well, women's basketball, <laughs> final four. <laughs> At this point, we've only had the semifinals. We're hours away now from the final, but the semifinals were spectacular. I mean, I'll just say it. Though. I mean, the women's final four is better than the men's. I did want to shout out, there was a spectacular article at The Guardian this week by Lois Beckett and Anyone who knows me at all knows that I love romance novels. But and, and Lois did this amazing article about race and racism in the romance genre. It's called mm, Fifty Shades of yes, White, the yes, long yes, fight so against good. racism. It is so, so good. Everything about it, it is really well done. She worked on it for 18 months. She talked to all these spectacular authors of color. It really gets at what has been going on in the genre for decades, but really specifically in the last few years as all of this has come to a head. So I just, I love that article. I read it like three times. And then I have really been into Maggie Rogers' album, which is new, and I just find it to be very listenable, very good listenable pop music that I can sing along to. So I've been enjoying that. Shireen, what's good for you? Okay, so as of Thursday, my life was taken over by a fabulous 20-month-old little girl named Pearl. (laughs) My best friend, Catherine, (laughs) was visiting with Pearl. They live in Nova Scotia, and I was really excited. Some of our flamethrowers might remember I was the bridesmaid at Catherine's wedding in the summer, so it was a really big deal for me because it's all about me. So (laughs) Pearl came over and just she's just incredible like she I was live tweeting her stay with me but not like continuously because she takes a like you need like five hands for a 20 month old and I mm. it's so funny because I've had uh, that four experience four four times and I just <laughs> am sort of like what is going on and then you know all my kids were home my eldest was even back to come and visit Catherine Pearl and there was so many of us. And at one point I said to Kath, why don't you go and get your nails done or whatever? And we'll take care of the baby. And it was just like all hands on deck. <laughs> and by 10, we, we had planned to put Pearl down. She sleeps pretty early and then play board games. But by 10 o'clock, we were all passed out. <laughs> so I ended up missing the second half of the Notre Dame-UConn game, which they lost. And I'm so, I'm so This is the one about. time where but, Shireen's reading interests are like not the popular one. You know, this is weird. I stand you. I stand them. Um, and speaking of happiness, the Habs won last night. It was their last game of regular season. They did not make the playoffs, but they won in shootouts against the Leafs, and it was really fun. And my mom is kind of, I think, Amira mentioned in the beginning. My mother was so happy, and they went into a shootout. So my mother was WhatsApping her reaction. She was like invoking Allah and prayers and like everything <laughs> possible. And my mother gets really religious during so hockey games. It was games. her. She was the reason then that they won. So good. For she your mom. was so happy. Yeah, she's <laughs> she's pretty great. And there's just one thing I wanted to draw everyone's attention to. Hopefully, we can put it in the show notes. So it's this really great story from a Winnipeg reporter named Melissa Martin, and it's a really I tweeted oh, it. Yeah. I RT'd her. So basically, a bunch of dads of synchronized swimmers got together to create Manitoba's only men's synchronized swimming team. And she got video of it. And they're completely not in sync, but they're just (laughs) trying to bring attention to their daughter's sport. And I just thought it was so great. Like in an era when we, you know, struggle with toxic masculinity and whatnot. Like it was just, it's a wonderful story. It's it's a really interesting video. So I just, that was brought me a lot of happiness. It was great. 
And there's adorable pictures that Shereen put up of Pearl and her uh, Biag swag. <laughs> so my what's good are college friends, specifically Alana and Marcelie. Uh, I had a conference in Philadelphia this weekend, which is weird to you know be back in the city you've lived in. And I love seeing all my academic friends and my mentors and my advisors and stuff like that. But because it was in Philly, I also had the opportunity to go see some of my loves from that chapter of my life. And so I popped over and saw Alana and Mars, who've been in our lives now for decade, uh, over a decade, which is wild. Marsley and Michael are frat brothers. And when I think about the village I had around me to help me get through school after I had Samari, it was they were integral to that. And I talk about this all the time because, you know, it's completely possible to have a kid as a teenager and, and still, you know, do it, what you want to do if you build resources and pool them and get community around you. And what that looked like for us was a whole bunch of, of college kids who babysat and let me, oh, wow. you know, took her every Thursday so I could go to night class and, you know, just were always there to watch her or or come sit with her while I studied or, you know, nobody, we, none of us knew what we were doing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sometimes I look now and I'm like, I can't believe I left my child with you. <laughs> but <laughs> <laughs> generally, you know, it's still, I can't look at them and without saying like, this is, I'm here, I'm where I'm at because of people like you and Mars and Alana have been good friends for so long. And, you know, they are funny. Mars does improv and he also does outpatient therapy. Uh, Alana is amazing, amazing health and wellness person whose Instagram is just like a reservoir of like therapy. She's a therapist as well as an instructor at, at various kind of workout spaces. And she's just such a light in this world. And she's, she talks very openly about a very harrowing experience in her life a few years ago where when she was running the Broad Street Marathon, she actually had a heart attack and she wasn't oh. yet 30. Um, And so she's also become a spokesperson for the American Heart Association and she's just absolutely incredible. And so anytime I get with them is wonderful. And we just had the best time yesterday. I I stayed in Philly way too long. I drove back way too late. So I'm very tired this morning, but it was really worth it to see, uh, to see my good friends. And lastly, the other thing that's good is Country Trap. I don't know if anybody has been following <laughs> Little Nas How X could you not? and Billy Ray Cyrus. <laughs> it's literally the best thing, not only because Black people are totally and have been part of country for, you know, ever, except that, you know, the the, stra- the infrastructure has not supported that, you know, a la Beyonce daddy lessons, right? Like not being included in that way. But Can but, I just say that after Notre Dame won, the other night that Muffet McGraw did like a little dance on the floor and someone put it to what is the name of little Nas X's song? Old Town oh, Road. Country Old Town Road. And so I I, I retweeted that the other night because I just best. thought that was like the perfect like combo of these the, the it really is meme and song and my Muffet. favorite is I don't know if people know this in pockets of the country there's like all these like black dudes who just like ride horses and you can go in West Philly in Detroit. My favorite thing now is all the videos that people are posting up of like black people doing like country ass shit and listening to this <laughs> so song good. and so i entertained pearl with a lot of muffet mcgraw with that trap country trap it's, actually it's literally the best thing it. yeah, so it's so good yeah old town road you can go in us my life is a movie but riding in boots cowboy hat from goose
Thank you for joining us. You can listen and subscribe to Burn It All Down. You can do so on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, TuneIn, wherever you get your podcasts. You can rate the show. Please rate the show wherever you listen to it. It helps us reach new listeners who might not know that we exist, but definitely need this sports podcast in their lives. We're on Facebook and Instagram at Burn It All Down Pod, and we're at Twitter at Burn It Down Pod. We also have a brand new website that was just released last week for our 100th episode. Check it out. You can find shows, links, our transcripts. You get link to our merchandise, link to our Patreon if you want to support the show financially. So check it out, burnitalldownpod.com. You can email us from the site as well. Should you want to get in touch, we love to hear from you. So from me, Amir Rose Davis, and Jessica Luther, Shireen Ahmed, that's it. We'll see you next week, flamethrowers. And I'm so-